ESPN and Anscape contributor Dominique Foxworth has a new podcast every Tuesday and Thursday, bringing his unique perspectives on football, the personalities that surround it, and just about anything else he finds interesting or thinks you might. So check out the Dominique Foxworth Show. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here, talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's it's an astute question. Um, Gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right (laughs) to to agree to this. I am Don McPherson, and my dilemma is that I have spent um, about 28 years doing gender-based violence prevention work on college campuses, and now I have a daughter who is a first-year student in college, and I'm trying to wrap my brain around letting go and just letting her be and have her experience in college. Well, worrying about kids who are leaving the nest is certainly relatable to all the parents who are listening, I'm sure. Um, But certainly your work makes you even more aware of some of the potential dangers and threats out there. Um, And the best advice I could give you is, is, I guess, what I learned from the way my parents handled sending both my older sister and me away for school, which is that you have to trust that you've taught your daughter how to handle herself, how to make good decisions, um, how to try to stay out of dangerous situations as best she can and surround herself with good people. Um, And, you know, there's things that you're never going to be able to control or plan for. um, And all the worry in the world isn't going to change that. So don't suffer it twice, you know, while worrying about it. And then again, if it actually happens, um, in the end, I think you probably know it's time to let her go and make her way into the world and projecting your fears onto her will just make leaving tougher for both of you and make this transition harder for her. So got to be strong. You got to trust that you've set her up for the world um, as best you can. That's the only advice I could give on this one. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Today is a return visit from one of my favorite guests whose work is is just as important as ever right now, uh, Don McPherson. Uh, first part of his life, he was a quarterback, seven seasons in the NFL and the CFL, and had a legendary college career at Syracuse, won the Maxwell Award, the Davey O'Brien Quarterback Award, and finished second in the 1987 Heisman Trophy voting. Uh, he's in the College Football Hall of Fame. But since retiring from the game, he's dedicated himself to writing and speaking about gender-based violence, harnessing the uh, the power, the appeal of sport, and his um, status as a great quarterback to address complex social issues and um, promote the concept of aspirational masculinity. He's the author of You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity, and you can find the book and the accompanying film on donmcpherson.com. Uh, so he returns to the podcast to talk about the book, the concept of aspirational masculinity, whether or not we should sort of concern ourselves even with femininity and masculinity instead of simply humanity, um, and the empathy and the grace that are required to dig into these tough issues and to care about the problems of the privileged classes as well as everyone else. Um, 
it just feels like this conversation is more important um, than ever in terms of understanding the limitations that we put on men emotionally in particular and how that results in acts of violence, attacks on women, incel culture, all that stuff. So hope you enjoy our conversation. That's what she said. (laughs) So a good time to have Don on, obviously because of all of the many things we're going to talk about today and the issues that are so prevalent in our society, but also because Syracuse is on a hot streak, Don. I mean, (laughs) I know you're fired up about your orange. You know what I what I love is what they've done really quickly in this age of transfer portal and all that is that they've come together as a team pretty quickly and with no preseason in college football, you know they've got the dome rocking again. I just did a story interview today with a student. It's now the JMA Wireless Dome, uh, so new name, new look for the team, and coming out three and zero with the Who's coming in tomorrow night. It's pretty good, pretty good experience right now. And they're even throwing back to your time. I saw some stories that said, I'm not saying this is the Don McPherson Syracuse, but dot, dot, dot. So uh, people are starting to reminisce about about the golden years, the good old days for Syracuse football. So you love to see it. Um, you know, I there was so much that we got into last time, and I just want to remind people, uh, first of all, obviously, go listen to the first episode that we did together. And a lot of what we talked about still so relevant now. But um, just to, to rehash some of the work that you did that got you here. And a lot of that is stuff that you started while you were still playing football, both collegiately and professionally. You you really um, you you knew at some point very early on that there was this interesting balance of privilege that you were afforded as an athlete while simultaneously, you know, growing up at the end of the civil rights era and recognizing other privileges that were denied to you. Um, is there an age that you could point to where you became particularly interested in in social justice issues and, and speaking and learning about stuff outside of football? You know, it's a really interesting question, Sarah, because now I, I think of privilege, and we'll talk about this later on, I think about privilege, about what it kept me from learning, because I did have a lot of privilege, you know, being the fifth child in a family where I had an older brother when I was in high school, got drafted in the NFL. My second brother was a professional boxer. My mother was a school nurse. I grew up in a really middle class, good family. But I do remember when I transferred high schools, I did transfer high, uh, high school in the ninth grade because of the football program at the, at the, the, the school I went to. And I remember the long walks, because when you transfer to school, you're not in the district, right? So you're making long walks to that other school. And I remember thinking to myself all, along those walks, like, why am I doing this? Why is football so important? And I, and, I, and I was special, right? I was special to have that opportunity. Why is football so important that I'm making this big sacrifice, this big move? And what are the privileges that, that I am afforded because of that? Um, where people were making exceptions for me, where people were making space for me. And so um, it goes back that far to when I was just in the ninth grade in high school when I started realizing that my experience in life was a little different. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I remember us talking last time about you got into doing some work with athletes against drunk driving, and there was this interesting dichotomy for you where there was this expectation of who athletes were and the influence that they had but also for them to speak to and act in ways that were not uh, even, you know, being mirrored by those uh, who were presumably in charge, right? That you were, for instance, going to talk to kids about drunk driving um, and the people asking you to come do those speeches were not mirroring the correct behavior in their own lives. You know, you were sort of being elevated to this space as if sports made you a better person just inherently by having the skill and talent of athleticism. And some of those kind of things butting up against each other is where you started to look around to figure out where sports was actually 
healing and beneficial and, and, and enabling great behavior and where it often was, in fact, covering up for bad behavior. It's so true. I remember being just uh, you know, barely driving. I was 19, 20 years old, and, and I was being asked to talk about drunk driving and other issues that I recognized that I was being asked to talk about the issues that adults in the lives of the young people that I was talking to weren't demonstrating. Um, and, and I realized you know, at, at that point that I was a part of, and I, I began to embody what I refer to as prevention language and scare tactics, sort of the, the empty oh, things yeah. you see just say no, right? Just don't do it. Those kind of empty claims and slogans. I personified that as, as an athlete, like do with this athlete, having no clue what my life was, what my behaviors were. I, I say to this day, the only thing I knew about drunk driving at the time was how to do it. And I was being asked <laughs> to go and talk to young people about these really important uh, life decisions and, and behaviors. And, and I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And I think you know, you talk about that was where you kind of got started, but then you got involved in programs for different social issues, leadership programs while you were in college and then while you were playing professionally in Philly and then in Canada. Um, over the course of that time, was it clear to you, OK, I want to make a living out of talking about this stuff and studying this stuff? Or was it simply a desire to stay involved in things outside of sport? And then eventually it became clear, oh, this is something I could actually make a make a life out of. You know, I, I'm laughing because here I am and you asked me about dilemmas and I'm thinking about how how I struggled during COVID because my life was doing the same things I was doing when I was in college, going and talking to young people. And we weren't doing that during COVID. And so your yeah. question is, when did I think about making a living? I probably never really have. <laughs> I just, you just I, when I started doing lucked work, into I really, it. <laughs> yeah, I did. And I love talking to young people and I love talking about the challenges of making decisions around social issues, even the social issues that I, you know, I personally struggled with or or thought about a lot, and so it it never was a this conscious decision where I'm going to do this until I retired from football and went to Northeastern University, um, the Center for the Study of Sport and Society. That I start thinking about um, issues in a more systemic way and in a way that they really intersected with so many other parts of our society. The focus of so much of your work and something that we talked predominantly about last time was the idea of masculinity. And I would say my thoughts on that have evolved since we last spoke. And um, certainly the ways that I see it intersecting with some of the biggest issues in our society have have grown and continued since a couple of years ago. But I, I want to start with the basic idea of masculinity and what you think the average person thinks of when they hear that word. You know, it, it, Sarah, my my feelings and thoughts, uh, I shouldn't say feelings, but my thoughts have evolved as well. And and so I'm going to kind of um, cheat a little bit on your question because I was actually, I did what I call the listening tour on a campus back in about a year ago. And I really wanted to know what young men thought of the term of, of masculinity in and of itself. And prior to that, when I would ask what it meant to be a man or the term masculinity, it was always the, what I refer to as the narrow view uh, of being tough, being strong, don't back down. Um, but in recent years and talking with young men recently, you know, they were telling me, that, and when I say young men, college age and, and younger, saying that there's no positive connotation. The term masculinity is a negative term mm. and it's only discussed after men or a man does something criminal, violent, 
uh, abusive. And then all of a sudden men have to have a conversation around masculinity and there's nothing positive to say about it. And, and, and so I, I think now when I, when I hear the term masculinity, I am trying to, and we'll, we'll get into this, uh, using the term aspirational masculinity so that we have a, a, a positive frame and a positive narrative, because right now that term masculinity, you is, is typically associated and we, we'll, we'll dive into this with the term toxic. And so I think that's where most people go is in the negative connotation of masculinity. Yeah, absolutely. When we hear masculinity at this point, we almost fill in the idea of toxic masculinity um, and or the idea of masculinity being the opposite of something. Masculinity mm. is don't be this. Don't be weak. Don't be sensitive. Don't be emotional. Don't be feminine. Right. Yes. So we yes. don't offer up a lot of positive ideas of what it means to be quote unquote masculine or what masculinity encompasses. And so you talk about this term aspirational masculinity. That's a big part of, of your new book. You throw like a girl, the blind spot of masculinity. And it, it is sort of the concept of having to choose to engage men and boys in a conversation that is a, a broader look at what it is to be a boy or a man that's getting more and more complicated as we talk about, you know, gender fluidity and as we talk about gender as a construct. But let's, for the sake of the beginning of this conversation, speak to sort of the the traditional ideas of masculine and feminine. Why is aspirational masculinity a concept that people should be talking to their boys and girls about, their children about, and also that would serve um, really people of any age to better understand and, and embrace? That is a, such an important and huge question for all the reasons you, you just cited. And I, and I go back to probably the thing that I get quoted the most of saying is something that, that, that came upon me talking with a, a man several years, my senior at the time. And I said, to him, you know, what does it mean to be a man? And, and everything was a don't. And it's yeah. where I, I always say that we don't raise boys to be men. We raise boys not to be women or gay men. And so we're always telling to, everything you just said. We're always telling boys what not to be. Don't be a sissy and, and all the don'ts. And, and the problem with that is we don't give them anything to build upon. We don't give them anything to aspire towards. Um, and, and we have resulted back to this very dark place. And, and before we use the term toxic to talk about masculinity or relationships, we tend to use toxic to talk about waste. And I'm, I'm sure wherever you are in a public space, there's two different garbage cans, one for garbage and one for, for waste that has to be separated from garbage. And that, that can't go into a landfill. We separate toxic waste from garbage. And this is a generation of young boys who have only heard the term masculinity referred to as being toxic. And, and the reason why is because we haven't been talking about masculinity for men and boys. We've been talking about masculinity because of the impact of the narrowness, being tough and strong, don't back down, and even violent of the narrowness of masculinity that has negatively impacted women's lives. And that's the only form that we've been talking about. We have not been asking men to do something for themselves. We've been asking men to recognize, as I always say in my book, in my work, I was asked to recognize a privilege I didn't know I had to address a problem I didn't know was mine. Mm. And the privilege was my silence around all forms of men's violence against women. It was a privilege that I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have to think about that. And the problem that that was mine um, is that I am part of of, of the class of, of people who abuse and, and are violent towards women and girls. And so, uh, and in order for us to fix that, men have to be proactively in, engaged in, in the problem. And so I think about my privilege as what did it keep me from learning? 
And, yeah. and as, opposed, as opposed to saying that, you know, that I've got to relinquish some privileges to make space for women, I've got to recognize what my privilege kept me from learning. And my silence is how terms like toxic enter the lexicon, because all we're dealing with is the problem and not what we want for our boys and men. It's such a fascinating thing, too, because I think I sometimes think about what marginalized groups of people end up learning and perceiving and seeing as a gift because it matters to me. And it matters to me that I then move through the world thinking about those things and trying to be cognizant of how I might make dynamics better or worse for the people that share the universe with me. Um, But I think a lot of people consider them burdens. And there are sometimes when they are burdens for me in my business to say, no, I don't want that guest on my radio show, no matter how famous they are, because I happen to know that he did this or that. And I don't want to promote that on my show versus some other show that does not care a lick about morality and can just book the best names and the biggest names and not have a care for having lighthearted, top level conversations with someone who may have done very bad things or espouse very bad views. And so sometimes it's a bit of a burden, but it matters and, and and it means something to me to engage with those things and to care about them. And I do think that there are conversations that particularly straight cis white men are often not invited to or left out of, or maybe even feel excused from like, you're not, in, you're not welcome here uh, because they do come from that specific class of people that are considered you know the normal the the powerful the in charge um and so it's interesting for you to frame that as something that you lost out on as opposed to a burden that you now take on from learning about it you, you know and, and and you know we, we started this talking about my dilemma and, and i'm 57 years old and I'm, and I'm still learning i'm still growing i'm still adjusting to my daughter being in college and having another one uh coming up behind her and and so there's this really important place where we are right now with the DEI conversation in the workplace and, and all the issues of men's violence against women, the overturning of Roe, all these different ways that our culture is being challenged along gender. And you are exactly right. It, it, it is this, this conversation that's very uncomfortable and people don't want to touch is that we have to make spaces for white men the cis heterosexual white men to be engaged in the conversation. If you look at the DEI conversation, everybody else is engaged. To, to your point, the, the uh, Latinx community, women, LGBTQ plus, uh, p- people of color, we're all engaged in in in, in conversations around 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 diversity. And then white men are the ones sort of like they're the villain in every conversation. And the reality is, and this goes back to to the book and what I refer to as the blind spot of masculinity. It's very easy for those "quote unquote" marginalized, and I don't think that my identity is marginalized. However, because I'm very, I'm, I feel good about who I am, and very proud of that, and I've experienced a lot of privilege, so I, I, I acknowledge that. But one of the things that that um, it's very easy for a marginalized identity is to look at such white men and say, "Oh, you've got all this privilege." Mm-hmm. They also have; they're also confined to that privilege. And 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 so there is that that um, very narrow understanding of what they're allowed to be, what they're allowed to express, and it's very easy from the outside to see um, that privilege and see only that privilege, but not recognizing that those men are experiencing a lot of the same feelings of anxiety, of insecurity, of inadequacy, of having all kinds of of, of problems that are financial, educational, family. Those problems don't escape them, and and I think it's a a point where we have to extend grace 
to welcome them into the conversation. And, and the blind spot of masculinity, and, and I'll just share this uh, without getting too deep into it, is my privilege as a man and my privilege as an athlete um, was very similar to my privilege as a little boy. Right. We don't ask boys to be emotional and to care about things. And that's why, you know, for years, it used to drive me crazy that people say, oh, boys are easier as, as kids. Well, no, that's because we ignore boys' emotional state of being. Mm-hmm. And we just tell them to go suck it up and go run around and go run it off. And whereas girls will more likely to coddle and acknowledge their feelings and not acknowledge, them, acknowledge their, their emotions. And what happens with boys, and it happens with girls as well, is that the first thing that we do, and this is, goes back to Bell Hooks. And what she says, the first act of patriarchy, the first violent act of patri- that patriarchy asks of boys and men is not violence against women, it's violence against ourselves. Yeah. And the first thing that we learn to do is we learn to ignore our feelings. And then we learn to distrust our feelings. And then as we get older, we've, we learn that we're not worthy of our feelings. We're not worthy of our wholeness and our whole identity. And this is, this is what I refer to as the blind spot. I have, when I wrote the book, I had 32 guys, and now there's 33, who I knew who I played football with, or I knew through the game as contemporaries who were dead. Six of them were suicides. There was the suicide that led to the film Concussion. And what nobody wants to say about those men, because they were warriors and they were the privileged ones in our culture, the scholarship athletes and the guys on TV, the guys making the money, those guys were incapable of saying, I am struggling, I am hurting, I need help, I can't do this. They manned up, they sucked it up. And I can tell you one guy that I talk about, and I won't go into great detail, but I will tell you, he checked the box on every bit of privilege you could check. Cis, heterosexual, white guy, all-American, high school, college, making great money, living in his hometown, all of it. And he killed himself. Mm. And he was one of those men who, who would be in that film, Concussion, who we wanted to very quickly blame it on concussion and CTE, when the reality was what he was incapable of doing was asking for help. And here's the other part of the, the, the blind spot is the people around him weren't saying, hey, we need to help him out. He's got all the privilege. What does he need help for? Yeah. And, and yeah. That, that that's why this conversation around aspirational masculinity is so important. I'm going to get into all of that because the asking for help and also the idea of not being allowed to suffer or being expected to be sort of not human because you are rich or good looking or athletic or successful, any of those things continues to plague our conversations around athletes and sport to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do not allow humanity to be a part of the experience for people if they are rich and successful enough, not understanding, of course, that they're afflicted by the same things as the rest of us. But I want to go back quickly to what you talked about, because I do think these conversations where we include sometimes the most problematic groups of people in these conversations is necessary instead of excluding them. And you say often in in your work um, that we stop we need to stop only asking boys and men to make space for others and instead ask them to make new spaces for themselves that aren't confined to the narrow definitions of masculinity. And it requires empathy and grace, I think, to include people um, in those conversations and to uh, to do the exercise of not all men, not all white women, right? And it also uh, requires of people who are perhaps um, not willing to accept their privilege to be willing to look around and see how others might view them and the rest of their brethren. I find this experience for me, like I understand inherently as a woman in the world that there are times that I might cross a street or behave differently around a man I don't know for fear of them potentially being a part of the small group of men that are dangerous to me. Right. 
and mm-hmm. that I see how men might be frustrated. I'm not a bad guy. I would never do anything. But you have to have the empathy for me to understand my experience and why I might feel that way about a stranger I don't know uh, the intentions of. But the same goes for me as a white woman. When I hear particularly black people or black women talk about intersectional feminism and saying, you know, white women, this and that. And I I want to think not all of us, but that's not fair of me. That's the same experience that they've gone through where they've looked at centuries of behavior and proximity to power that white women have to their white husbands or relatives that gets them closer to the money and the access and the power than aligning with their fellow women of color. Um, And I get it. And I have to be able to have the grace and the humility to say, it's not me, but I'm a part of this group and therefore it's on me to help change it. Right. Those are really difficult conversations to have with some people, though, because we get caught up on the very simple matter of just the word privilege, where you throw it out there and it's over. The conversation's done already. I don't know if you found better ways to engage people who are going to immediately get defensive when those conversations start. You know, privilege is fluid. The first chapter of my book is titled Black Man with Privilege. And I, I talk about my privilege that I have that um, it, it looks so different in different ways. I have privileges as a black man that would otherwise, you know, for example, when, when people say to me, oh, you must have been an athlete. I find that highly, I find that highly offensive. However, there are other times when I find it a huge compliment. Right. Right. <laughs> because oh, do I look fit? Do I look, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? do I look like a, you know, a real man? You know, and so there's, <laughs> And so we have to be able to laugh at it. And I think that the words you use, humility and grace, um, and you cannot have this conversation without a a fair amount of grace in in the dialogue because we all have privileges that are fluid. And, and and, And privileges, the term privilege, just like toxic masculinity, has come from an era where otherwise, and I hate to use the word marginalized, but otherwise marginalized, the voices have been silent but now, because of the era that we live in with technology and media, marginalized voices have a platform. And, and so, you're, and by the way, you're seeing mar- white supremacist voices are marginalized in a multi in a multicultural society, yeah. in a society mm-hmm. that had that embraced a black president. Um, white supremacist voices will say, "Well, we're marginalized, right? We're, we're we're sitting here quiet. We're not allowed to speak at the PTA meetings." And right? and so that's where that all that's coming from. And it, it does require a, a, a tremendous amount of grace to, to be able to listen, to hear, not listen to respond, not listen to retort, but listen to hear and understand, uh, and then extend that grace of understanding to each other so that we can have a, a conversation that's positive and productive. And it doesn't happen, it happens. Let, let me tell you, one of the things that, that I love and hate about, again, talking about you know the, the fluidity, is that people think that sports is a meritocracy and sports is this great place. And we just had the, the death of James Conn and reminded us of Brian's song. Sports is this place where diversity, and we talk about, you know, um, you know, the great athletes of, you know, the Jackie Robinson and the guys who, men and women who, who broke in the Culibari. And we think that it's this automatic, that those things happen automatically. They don't. And, and Jackie Robinson wasn't this great social justice pioneer. He was the guy with really, really, really thick skin. And, mm-hmm. and was able to go out and perform even with, with death threats and everything else that were happening in real time as he was walking to the plate. And so you have this, and we also have, you know, our, our convenient memories. Like we love Muhammad Ali. We hated Muhammad Ali. America yeah. hated Muhammad Ali. And, and so there's, there's all these things where we, we kind of want to package sports as being this thing. But sports has one thing 
that forces us to work together. And that's the, the desire to win. That's the desire to come together to make something happen and, and, and in a positive way. And the, the more you have, and it doesn't matter what sport it is. I say every sport's an individual sport and every sport's a team sport. You have to rely on people around you. And, and sports is not necessarily that those things happen automatically, but you have to work at them. One of the most difficult conversations I've had in all my years of doing the work I do is during COVID, when when uh, during the, the summer of George Floyd in 2020, my old teammates and I, about 25 of us, got together on a Zoom to talk about George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter. And it was a difficult conversation because all of a sudden, these guys who, who learned to love each other because of the game of football were having a difficult time extending that love and grace in a more difficult conversation that we had never had before. And so it it is a very complicated conversation. And I I think you using the word grace uh, and humility is at the center of how we get there. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Love. Love. Um, since we've done this word a couple times before, let's instead learn something interesting about the symbol for love, the heart shape. So this is from history.com. Some believe the iconic pictogram is derived from the shape of ivy leagues, which are associated with fidelity, while others contend it was modeled after breasts, buttocks, or other parts of the human anatomy. Perhaps the most unusual theory concerns sylphium, a species of giant fennel that once grew on the North African coastline near the Greek colony of Serene. The ancient Greeks and Romans used sylphium as both a food flavoring and a medicine, but it was most famous as an early form of birth control. Ancient writers and poets hailed the plant for its contraceptive powers, and it became so popular that it was cultivated into extinction by the first century AD. Uh, Sylphium's seed pod bore a striking resemblance to the modern Valentine's heart, leading many to speculate that the herb's association with love and sex may have been what first helped popularize the symbol. The ancient city of Serene, which grew rich from the Sylphium trade, even put the heart shape on its money. So while the Sylphium theory is compelling, the true origins of the heart shape may be more straightforward. Scholars have argued that the symbol has its roots in the writings of Galen and the philosopher Aristotle who described the human heart as having three chambers with a small dent in the middle. According to this theory, the heart shape may have been born when artists and scientists from the Middle Ages tried to draw representations of ancient medical texts. In the 14th century, for example, the Italian physicist Guido de Vigivano made a series of anatomical drawings featuring a heart that closely resembles the one described by Aristotle. Since the human heart has long been associated with emotion and pleasure, the shape was eventually co-opted as a symbol of romance and medieval courtly love, It grew especially popular during the Renaissance when it was used in religious art depicting the Sacred Heart of Christ and as one of the four suits in playing cards. By the 18th and 19th centuries, meanwhile, it had become a recurring motif in love notes and in Valentine's Day cards. So pretty fascinating. I've never really thought about that. I mean, you know it doesn't actually look like a real heart, but um, the backstory on it is pretty cool. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. The word of the week is postprandial. So shout out to my friend Kara. She used it over the weekend, and I'd never heard it before, so I instantly had to look it up. It's circa 1820, meaning happening, said, or done after dinner. From post, meaning after, and the Latin prandium, which is uh, luncheon. And so postprandial. 
uh, ha- something happening said or done after dinner. So in a sentence, she awoke to discover that her postprandial nap had caused her to miss the beginning of Monday Night Football. Now let's get back to the interview. When we talked about this last time you were on, this idea of some people might recoil at the thought of having empathy for white men that they might be left out of conversations or feeling like they're shouted down or they're always posited as the enemy or they go into evolved or quote unquote woke classrooms and their opinion is always now the 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 opinion of a pariah and there are instances of that that are roll your eyes pathetic a group of people who just simply have never been told no recognizing finally what it feels like to not have everyone just say, what a great idea. You're so right all the time. Right. But then there are plenty of instances where it mirrors the larger conversation that you're having about men and masculinity and boys, which is stop talking to them as if they are the thing being fought against and instead make them feel like a part of something. Stop making it always about here's what you do to everyone else. And instead, here's how you can be a part of making things better for all of us. That little reframe seems like a really big part of the root of what you talk about when we talk about masculinity and the qualities that we allow uh, boys and men to have. Yeah, it is such, you're so spot on, and, and it is such a difficult thing to, to express to people outside of the room. I'm about to, to launch a program at my alma mater at Syracuse University around aspirational masculinity, and I'll be working with, and I've had conversations with fraternities, the IFC, the white fraternities, student athletes, uh, different, different cohort groups of, of male-identified students, and that group of fraternity men who have a, a you know, for all, all sorts of valid and some uh, invalid reasons have that they are that class of people you just talked about. They're not allowed to walk. They walk into the classroom. They're the pariah in the classroom, all those things. And to talk with them one on one, I gain so much more confidence in the conversation around um, extending grace because they are the ones who are not allowed to say, they're not, not even within, within their own groups, they're not allowed to say that they're struggling and that they're hurting. And, and so, or or that they have feelings about certain things that they're not allowed to express. And, and this is, this may not sound like a big thing, but it is a big thing to me and to them. I was, was talking about sex and pornography. Uh, and again, the things that we don't teach boys, we don't talk to boys about sex. We don't talk to boys about their bodies. If you look at all the healthy sex uh, conversations that happen on college campuses, it's all geared towards women. It's all talking about women's bodies and women's, right. and, and rightfully so. But we're not teaching boys about their own bodies. We're not teaching boys about about their own want and understanding of intimacy. And it may sound like, oh, why would boys want to learn that? They need to learn that. And they want to learn that. And one of the things that we don't tell them is that sex is amazing and it's wonderful. And I had a young man say to me, well, Don, you know, it's it's inevitable because we're talking about alcohol and consent and all these, uh, you know, these code words. And when I say code words, I mean, those words like, you know, just say no. Um, consent is nothing more than permission to do what guys have seen in porn right and so i so i was having this conversation with these guys and one of them said well you know don you know there's alcohol and there's girls and it's inevitable that and i said you know what if you were taught what it was truly like to make love and to be intimate and i'm not talking about intercourse to be intimate and to be with someone who you respect and you love and you care for and you know how to communicate that and you know how to communicate your feelings and to hear that from another human being I guarantee you, you would want to be sober for that. 
I guarantee you, you'd want to have a clear mind when you understood how to engage in, in that. And then they don't, they, they've got a very narrow and dangerous understanding of sexual behavior and intimacy. And that does require alcohol. That does require the things that you've seen that no one's ever taught you how to truly appreciate a human experience. And you may think that I'm talking Pollyannish and, I, and I'm saying things that your college men, I am telling you, I've been having this conversation on that point with college men for the last, it, on that issue alone, for the last 10 years. And I've never had college men say, no, nah, man, this ain't right. They lean into that because right. no one has ever said it to them. Well, I think there's very clear and obvious damage to women when men are not interested in consent, when men are learning from porn, when men are pursuing and believe that the only way to do things is um, I'm supposed to go after until they relent. Right. Like that's what we always are showed in movies. Men pursue until women relent and women who are less than are more relenting than others and yada, yada. What we don't respect is that maybe to a lesser degree, because it doesn't involve violence or violation, men are not allowed to pursue valuable sexual engagements or they don't feel like they need to be comfortable and secure and whatever in order to engage. They feel like they should always want and pursue um, in a way that's very empty. And so we're setting them up for a, a situation that isn't particularly beneficial to them either. Um, and this comes back to the larger just root of the conversation that we are having more now than we used to, which is great, which is the idea of we're always telling girls you can be anything you want because for so long girls and women were and are still now truly limited, both legally and otherwise, from pursuing certain things. Um we, we've never had a woman president. Women are not in control of their own bodies, all of these things. But what we do by not having conversations with boys about all the things they can be is we limit them in ways that manifests and grows and festers. Um, and so it's just as important to tell men that they can ask for help, have feelings, be emotional, show their concerns and fears. And when we don't do that, we create issues like mass shootings and incel traits and violence against women because of a pushback against gender norms and gender um, expectations. Um, and that's, a, 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 I think, something we're getting into more, Don, because of the extreme results of not talking about it for so long. I mean, it, it almost feels like it required massive, high-level, violent acts for us to really understand what we've done to our boys and men. And, and, you know, the expression that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. When, when violence happens at, at that scale of mass shootings, and um, we're very quick to talk about mental health and access to guns. Women have mental health issues. Women have access to guns. Women don't do the same kind of violence. And and you're you're exactly right that that we, you know, obviously the, the overturn of Roe is something that is, um, is, is sort of just as, as, as someone who does this work, and I'm sure for you as a man, it is a, a moment of 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 a of recognizing a privilege that is grotesque of 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 male privilege in our society and, and, and hiding behind that. And and so you, you're exactly right about about the limitations put on on women, and those limitations are put on women by men who have limited understanding of themselves. Yeah. And 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 if I don't see myself. Um, as and I and I said this at a conference recently. If I don't see myself as a loving, caring, empathetic, passive, submissive, emotional, vulnerable human being, and I I cannot identify those qualities in myself, I cannot express those qualities, and I associate those qualities with being female and being being a, a girl or a woman, then how can I respect women 
if I don't mm. see those, if I don't even respect those qualities in myself. Right. And I it's not that, humanity it then, it's weakness. Exactly, exactly. And so there, there is this real need. Um, I, I, and you said this at, at the top, I think that there's so many of the problems that we're seeing in, in our culture and our society do come back to this rigidity. I, I, I would say that the resistance is not the LGBTQ plus uh, or women or people of color. The resistance is cis heterosexual white men and, and dare I say something that may, you know, pull the plug on this interview, the Constitution didn't include you or me in it. Right. And and so it, it was a it was a time where slave owners uh, wrote the rules and we're still trying to have fealty to these to these rules that didn't include people of color. They didn't even see me as a whole person. Uh, and and the, the legacy of that exists. And when you and, and so, you know, th there's a real reckoning about humanity that does need to be examined. And I think that's where, not think I know, that's where grace needs to come into the conversation uh, because we're not having that conversation right now. We are very much dug in in our heels because we think, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the sex conversation, but boys and men, boys don't learn that sex is what we do with women. It's what we learn we do to mm -hmm. them. And, and so we need to understand that even in this conversation, um, and, and I always say this about, the term homophobia. Uh, men aren't afraid of women who are gay. And and why are men afraid of, of gay men? Because they think that gay men are going to treat them the way, the way they, they treat, treat women. women. Yeah. Exactly. And so there's so much homophobia this... is just misogyny. A exactly right. Right. And, and so there's and so, and so there's so much of this um, fear that if we allow equality, if we allow grace, that somehow if I've had the privileged position, all of a sudden I'm going to become the victim of what I've dispensed. Right. That I mean, that's a that's a conversation that could be had across so many different groups so of many different, people yes. in power. And also the idea so often in conversations of race and reparations and and equality in terms of uh, job opportunity and everything else is this fear that giving power to the oppressed will make them treat us the way we've always treated them. When so often that's the oppressed simply want equality and are offering up an immeasurable amount of grace to their oppressors in the pursuit of simple fairness. And the the revelation, of course, is that the people in power will continue to oppress for fear that they one day will be treated like the people that they've always mistreated. That conversation is a good one for another time. Okay, let's talk about what you just mentioned with homophobia. And, and I'm, I'm intrigued by, as we continue to roll over in our minds the concept of gender the the construct of gender because sex is a biological thing and gender is a social construct mm. should there be such a thing as masculinity or femininity wouldn't it be better to just stick with humanity and then see who each individual person is. What qualities that we have traditionally associated with masculinity do you tend to lead with? What qualities do we traditionally associate with femininity? Because I don't know that I see too much of a purpose. Too often, quote unquote, feminine uh, speaks to qualities that I think are setting me up to be walked all over, not promoted, not paid the same, expected to be ladylike, expected not to speak up, like all these things, this softness and weakness associated with women that doesn't particularly apply to me. And to your part, as we've talked about this whole time, masculinity is so often associated with the basest and worst and most violent tendencies in men. Shouldn't we just do away with those words altogether? Ooh, yeah. 
<laughs> well, here, here's I'm, I'm going to go right to the to the heart of the matter. It's God the Father. It, it that is the heart of the matter, and and because there is there is this thing about unity and um and not not unity humanity that you're exactly right, and and all the qualities that you talked about. Um, if you went down the list of all the qualities that that fit within masculinity and all the qualities that fit within femininity, on a daily basis, personally, I exhibit and practice and adhere to the feminine qualities more to the masculine, uh, of of being um, all of it to, to being emotion to, to working on my emotional competence and and competence um, to to being more. Um, accepting, more agreeable, um, all, all those things. I am not a tough guy. I never. Been a tough. So yes, we should. However, it is in every way of, of every everything that 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 um, social constructs and society and and governments and financial institutions and financial systems. It, it all comes back to this, you know, that's why the, you know, the, the God is, is on the God in God. We trust is on the money in, in a society where we, but we should can, it in a society that in, in theory should be a separation of church and state. If no, everybody has different religious views, I, why would our gender and our behavior as human beings be in any way related to someone's religious persuasion? I, I agree with I agree with you wholeheartedly, but there is still this fundamental understanding of at least belief, I say belief, that you came from my rib. When in actuality, I came from your vagina. Right? For so you, for you, there might be that belief. I'm surprised no, no, that this I, I would be your your opinion because I think you it's not seem my so. No, but no, no. But, but so you believe it's the opinion of the predominantly Christian parts of our country and the world. I, I mean, I mean, it's it's not just America. It, it is that you know it's the foundation of of civilization of where did life begin. Okay, and, so and, let's go with the what I usually have when people's responses. It's always been that way. Does that yeah. mean it's right? No, I'm not, I'm not arguing, asking you if I'm it's, not even that if it's, that it's right. Real. I'm asking if we should going forward have those limited expectations that people will fit into one or the other. No, I don't believe so. And and that's and you know when you when we started this you asked me about my dilemma my that's that's my ultimate dilemma is, is that I, I think that we are as as a civilization of human beings we are are, are very very fundamentally flawed. Right. Um, in, in in a whole, whole host of ways. And and we're um, and we're not we're not interested in in exploration of of this very conversation. It's it's a hard one, and it's much easier for people to believe in 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 religion and believe in 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 a, in a story that More roles right yeah well the, right but but if you tell if, me what if, I am and 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 that's easier for me than asking and finding out right absolutely. like you said people don't want to have these conversations particularly the people who are the most I think loud about why do we need pronouns and what it, what does it matter and why should you allow it to be non-binary presenting or whatever are the ones who maybe most have questions of, of their own about themselves. And there's the greatest privilege. I go back to this. The greatest privilege is silence is I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to be challenged by it. I'm right. not going to address this it. This doesn't affect me. So not only will I never address it or talk about it, I don't want anyone else to either. <laughs> Yeah, and not only, but, but you know, the, the, I think it's I think it's more for the people who it does matter to them, but they're so afraid of it. 
Hmm. And they were they're afraid of it because, you know, for for example, this conversation, I have a brother who's who's a pastor of a mega church in San Diego. He played for the San Diego Chargers. This conversation isn't is a scary one to have in my family. Hmm. And so it's so it's it so scary that we don't have it, that we just don't go there. And because I want to maintain and, you know, my, my parents have passed, but I want to maintain my re- relationship with my parents or with my community. I mean, you, you hear about Adam Kinzinger talking about this in the political sense. No one wants to be kicked out of their tribe. And, right. and so there's this fear that if I start to speak my truth, my truth is not as as. Um, uh, dogmatic as, as the tribe in which I, I was born into, or that I have my that I gained my most most of my privilege, and so it's very scary for people to speak outside of their tribe. And I think that's the, yeah. I think that's a scary place where we are right now uh, because it's so easy. Like I'm saying this to you about my brother, right? It's so easy. My brother might hear this tonight. He yeah. might hear this and say, "Oh, yeah. and I've had my brother say to me, "Hey, you said this about so and so," you know. So it, it is really scary for people to talk about. And I've seen this in, in different schools and situations where you want people to disclose an incident or you want people to report. And, and the scary thing is if I report, then I'm going to lose my privilege of being in this place. Right. People will see me differently because I'm no longer the same as them. Well, not just no longer the same as them. I turn, what's worse, what's worse than no longer the same is that I turned on them. Right. It's, it's right. Worse, that it's I've worse. called out members of my own community or of that I've changed yes. the dynamic of this space that I was meant to protect, even at, at the expense of myself. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. This quote on the first act of violence that patriarchy has in boys is to is to ignore themselves. So we're running out of time here. I wanted to quickly ask you, um, you know, it feels like there's a, a slight change in our expectation for coaching and sports, right? The mm-hmm. antiquated ideas of how to motivate people, the reconciliation of what it means to be tough or manly in sport uh, is being offset at least slightly by our willingness to get more into conversations of mental health. Um, Dak Prescott talking about his depression, Kevin Love, athletes who are willing to say, I need to step away and address what's going on with me. Um their baby steps and the reaction from some to those people is still unsavory and, 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 and very unevolved. Um, But it is, I think, starting to affect what we want out of coaches and leaders in sports as well, which used to be like bullying people into submission uh, in order to make them feel part of this fraternity or this group. Um, And now I think there's a more lifting up a more, a more expectation of of building up and and making people feel safe as part of this this group. Um, have you noticed that? And do you think we can actually get to a healthy place when it comes to how we view athletes and sports? Or will we all always have a little bit of of that stuck in toxic masculinity part of it? Because in the end, it is often strongest and and who wants it most and all of that. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that might get me in trouble with with some people in in my professional circles. Okay. Um, the, <laughs> as I as I want to do, um, the, everything you're saying. Th- there's a generation. I, I, when I talk with coaches now, and every time I go to a campus, I, I'll ask coaches, "How long have you been at this institution?" You know, anywhere from you know six six months to forty years. And for the people ten plus years, I, I ask, "How many? How much has changed that you have mm. to deal with now that you didn't have to deal with ten years ago?" And it's 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 incredible. 
how much has changed everything from trans athletes to the mental health conversation uh, to all the all the issues that we ask coaches now to deal with. None of them, not one coach in any on any college campus or any pro program was hired because of their understanding of those complex social issues. Yeah. And so and so what you have is this this these these coaches who would they would they were actually hired to do just the opposite. The team yeah. athletes to suck it up, to play through pain, to ignore their feelings for the benefit of the good of, of, of the team. Right. And so and where I think and this is the part that I said will be controversial is that we've seen young people struggle in that that narrow that sort of dogmatic environment. And we've called it a mental health problem. And, and, we, and so we're, we're addressing it and we're actually telling the young people it's a mental health issue. And and, I, and this is where I use why I say aspirational masculinity is so important. If we said to men, you are only, only allowed to be tough, strong, and not allowed to cry, yes, that's a mental health problem. But if we said to men, no, you are also loving and empathetic and the crying is a strength, and we show them their, their entire humanity, then with, that's the aspirational masculinity piece. Yeah. Yeah, it is yeah, a I, mental health problem if they're stuck in a paradigm yeah. to, to which they can't escape without therapy, without right. But if, if we taught them to live in their wholeness, and and so and this is why I say that the conversations I have with student athletes, whether they're male or female student athletes, we tell them male or female, ignore your pain, suck it up, play through mm, pain, right? Mm-hmm. And we tell them it doesn't matter male or females, and that's why I say that that to me it's it's this notion that this is the narrowness of what you can be. And we've we've called that when it's demonstrated of someone saying, I can't do that. We call it a mental, we, we've called it and labeled it mental health. And when you hear Dak Prescott saying, hey, I'm struggling, that's Dak Prescott saying, that's the that's most strength thing. That's, that's strength that's, because of everything thing. that's going to come your way when you admit that. Is, exactly. It, it can it, be it, very it, tough, it, but you're also going to make yourself a million times healthier and happier if you're able to ask for help versus that list of former teammates you have that that met unfortunate ends in part because they weren't able to ask people you know that is is, i I had a young man and 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 i know we were short on time was a division three athlete um tell me that he got to college at the small school in the midwest and he realized he didn't want to play football anymore and his his mom and his sister were saying, oh, this is your ticket. And, you're, and he was playing Division three football. He wasn't going anywhere afterwards. And he was saying, you know, my mom, my sister, like, and he felt, and he said, he told me, I'll never forget this. He told me he wanted to start a, an organization called Defective Athletes because he thought that there was something wrong with him, that he didn't want to play football anymore. And, and, and I was, at the time I was writing my book and, and I was about to take off on my flight when I got the email from him telling me that he felt like he was defective because he didn't want to play football. And, and I literally, the plane is taking off and I wanted to reply to him. And I had, uh, I think it was a two hour flight. Um, I spent two hours writing to him and telling him that him realizing that he didn't want to play football anymore. He just wanted to study and, and focus on his studies was the most healthiest thing I've ever heard from a young man yeah. uh, in his mm-hmm. position. And then it was so smart and so uh, thoughtful of him to be able to say that. And I wanted him to have the courage to be able to say it to his mother and his sister to say, no, this is healthy. This is me owning my wholeness and my full humanity. And this is the best thing for me. And not trying to fit myself into this narrow or square uh, hole of, of, of being a football player. And, and I think we need to stop calling it a mental health problem and really start talking about it in the terms of the narrow, narrow masculinity that is synonymous with sport. 
I just wish more people would have these conversations. Uh, what you just said just makes me think about so many other instances of parents or family members who may believe in their hearts that they want what's best for their child or their family member. And what they do by virtue of, of presenting this very narrow idea of what success is or what faithfulness or what uh, anything is, is to instead restrict them to the point of deep unhappiness. And it makes me really sad. I think if more people were willing to have these kind of conversations to think about themselves, their interactions with others, their relationships with others, and the choices that everybody should be able to make about their own lives, um, everyone would be a lot happier. And there'd be a lot fewer people who are ostracized because of religious beliefs or sexuality or gender presentation or anything, um, whether they want to play football or be in the band or whatever it is. Um, it makes me so sad when people are judgmental and restrictive of other people's life choices in that way. Um, I think it's, I think so much of it comes from fear and an unwillingness to have these kind of conversations and just be open to evolution. So I always appreciate that you're doing the work. I always appreciate that you're having these conversations and particularly from your perspective and your vantage point and your place of privilege as a super, super successful quote unquote, super manly former football player. I think that makes all the difference when you walk into a room. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and that process and that evolutionary process and conversation is one that I am still on that journey. So um, because it is it's complicated and it's complex and, and we have to be courageous enough to be uncomfortable in the conversation because that's where growth is going to happen. I can't imagine being someone who wants to be done learning and growing. That seems like a very right. sad way to go through life. I'm pretty much every day. I'm like, what can I learn today? Um, right. Stupid fact, funny fact, a uh, piece of information about our history or something I could use going forward. So always grateful for your time, Don. Uh, I'm going to send everybody out to go read your book and watch the film version and keep having these conversations. So thank you so much. Awesome, sir. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. And this week, listen to Camp with two A's, C-A-A-M-P, and Noah Khan, spelled K-A-H-A-N. I spent the weekend uh, at the Sound on Sound Festival in Connecticut, and they were both there. Now, I've been a fan of Camp for like a year plus now, and it's one of my new favorite bands. But I hadn't heard of Noah Khan until this fest and heard him live for the first time there. And he was super good. Uh, great young singer-songwriter, good sense of humor, great onstage banter and stage presence. Um, my favorite tunes of his so far are Northern Attitude and Stick Season. I also like Mess and Young Blood. So check him out. Camp and Noah Khan. Good, good music. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review. Maybe you'll end up on the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>